This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Sean, I'm a producer here at ACME and uh, I'd like to welcome you all to tonight's event, Scorsese in Focus. I'd also like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri people and to pay my respects to the elders of the Kulin Nation, both past and present. Uh, now, tonight's event, Scorsese in Focus, is of course presented in conjunction with ACME's Scorsese exhibition, uh, which opened two nights ago and is part of a series of events and programs that showcase, celebrate and contemplate the work of Martin Scorsese. Uh, in addition to the panel discussion tonight, uh, this evening we'll also see a special keynote lecture by I the iconic David Stratton, who will be exploring the essential works of Scorsese at 7 o'clock, and a screening of the filmmaker's classic film Taxi Driver at 9 o'clock. Uh, tickets for both of those events are still available, so if you're craving even more Marty after our speakers are finished here tonight, uh, please do come along to those. Uh, we also have a great program of events and screenings continuing throughout the run of the exhibition itself. Uh, including an interactive film club on selected Sundays uh, and a special cinema screening of Scorsese's recent HBO series, Vinyl, uh, which is on next Tuesday evening. Uh, so be sure to check out the ACME website for full program details. Uh, tonight's event is also presented uh, with the generous support of our program partner, uh, the United States Consulate General of Melbourne. Uh, here to say a few quick words about Scorsese, the exhibition and their partnership with the Scorsese program is Public Affairs Officer at the Consulate, Bill Furnish. Thank you very much. Um, as you all probably can, can tell from my strange accent, I'm, I'm happy to be here tonight on behalf of the Consulate and the United States government and uh, to have been able to support ACME's wonderful public exhibition and the programming. You know, there's no director alive today with as many Academy Award nominations as Martin Scorsese. Um, and when he finally won for The Departed in 2007 uh, at a ceremony in which um, I think it was Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola um, uh, were among the presenters and he's accepting the, you know, they call him up to, to say that he had won. And the first thing he asked him was, uh, you might want to double check the envelope, you know, because make sure that's me on there. Um, but he, his, look, his is the quintessential American New York story. Uh, he's the grandson of Sicilian immigrants. His parents worked in the garment industry in New York uh, as, as a clothes presser and a seamstress, and he's gone on to become one of the most celebrated filmmakers of, in, in, in American history, and in, in really in the history of filmmaking. Um, he's a child of New York, the great melting pot, and you can tell that he's absorbed all of those influences from from New York and from around the world, all the other artists that helped to produce the stories that he tells, the stories of America and the United States, and everything from the stifling gentility of the Age of Innocence to the screaming excesses of the Wolf of Wall Street. And so for over, over almost six decades, he's told the stories of boxers and gamblers and cops and saviors, mobsters and musicians, and while he's always creating these wonderful new stories or new ways of looking at old stories, at the same time, he's also working to ensure that film history is preserved for generations to come 
through his foundations. And I think this, this wonderful Scorsese exhibition shows some of that history. So we're, we're glad to see that. It's really hard to overestimate the influence that Scorsese has had as a, as a director, an artist, a collaborator, and a mentor. And I'm thrilled that ACME is, uh, is, is shining a spotlight on this extraordinary man and that you have all come along tonight to help uh, make it shine even brighter. So thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Uh, and thanks again to the United States Consulate General for your support. Uh, now on to Scorsese in Focus. Uh, for tonight's event, we have gathered a stellar lineup of speakers uh, who will focus in on the master filmmaker's expansive career and his distinctive cinematic impact. Uh, the panel includes a special link-up with an international guest, uh, Professor Ian Christie, who is joining us uh, live from the UK, where it's very early in the morning. Uh, um, so special thanks to him for getting up so early to join us. Uh, and we'll be led by Dr. Mark Nichols. Uh, Dr. Nichols is Senior Lecturer in Cinema Studies at the University of Melbourne. His areas of research and teaching include, but aren't limited to, Italian cinema, art cinema, film and performance studies, film history, and even Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh, he's the author of Scorsese's Men, Melancholia and the Mob, as well as numerous chapters and articles on Italian art and film in the Cold War, the television series Mad Men, Shakespeare in Film, and of course, Martin Scorsese. Uh, he's also a film journalist and worked for many years on ABC Radio and for The Age, for which he wrote a weekly film column between 2007 and 2009. And he has an extensive list of stage credits as a playwright, a performer, a producer, and a director. Dr. Nichols will introduce you to the rest of the panel shortly, but for now, please join me in welcoming him and all of our speakers to the stage. Thanks, Sean, and thanks to Bill for your kind and incredibly well-informed words. You should be up here with us. <laughs> um, it's an absolute delight to be here. Um, for many of us, after many, many years of immersion with this director, I've told this story before, but when I was researching Scorsese, I found a cartoon, I think came from The New Yorker, and... I have to say that my wife put this cartoon on our bedroom door and it said, it had a couple driving into New York and there was a sign saying, welcome to New York, Martin Scorsese sleeps here. <laughs> That's a bit the effect I think he's had on, I think all of us in one way or another for quite a long time. Um, I'll introduce my colleagues uh, all together if I may. Um, Bruce Isaacs, sitting at the end of the table, is Senior Lecturer in Film Studies at the University of Sydney, and his work covers film style and technological development, with a focus on classical and post-classical Hollywood cinema. He's the author of The Orientation of Future Cinema, 2013, and co-editor of the special journal issue The Cinema of Michael Bay, which is appearing, or did appear in Senses of Cinema. Adrian Dank, sitting to my immediate right, is Director of Higher Degree Research in the School of Media and Communication at RMIT University. He's co-curator of the Melbourne Cinematheque and was editor of Senses of Cinema for 
15 years. A long time, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> 2000 to 2014, and we're very indebted to him. He's published widely on fields such as auteurism, cinema history, and the aesthetics of film technology. He's the author of A Companion to Robert Altman, 2015, and is currently writing a number of works, including a monograph on uh, devoted to 3D cinema and a volume examining international feature film production in Australia during the post-war era. Rebecca Harkins-Cross, sitting between all these Scorsese's men up on the stage, is a writer and critic. She's currently editor of, uh, film editor of The Big Issue, film columnist for The Lifted Brow, and is a PhD candidate in creative writing and film studies at Monash University. Her work focuses on arts and culture, with a particular interest in Australian cinema, and it appears regularly in The Age, The Australian, The Saturday Paper, and Mianjin. In 2015, she was named one of the 30 writers under 30 by the Melbourne Writers' Festival. I'm envious on two counts there. <laughs> and in 2014, she was a finalist for the Scribe Nonfiction Prize and the Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellow. Finally, and uh, he's a disembodied spirit, but I gather he's on the line, um, we're very privileged to have with us this morning Professor Ian Christie. Ian is Professor of Film and Media History at the University of London, Birkbank. He has written several books and a host of chapters and articles and commentaries on many, many aspects of cinema. He has a particular interest and dedication uh, to the work of the filmmakers Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, which are hugely influential on Scorsese, as you will have seen if you've seen the exhibition or if you've even seen a Scorsese film. And, of course, his work on Martin Scorsese is um, essential to anyone working on, um, on, on the director, his, uh, particularly his canonical book, of which I have every edition, every time it comes out, I feel I've got to buy the new one, but it's always worth it, of uh, Scorsese on Scorsese, um, which he did with David Thompson, of course. Um, can I ask you to please welcome, uh, with a warm hand, my fellow colleagues. The format for this evening, this afternoon, is we're going to um, offer you an introductory gambit uh, on our quite different takes on Scorsese and, and the importance of Scorsese uh, to the work that we're doing and, and I think the work um, that he's doing. Um, and we'll have uh, a few clips to show with our discussion. Um, uh, we'd like to have some discussion amongst us and I warmly invite you to become part of the discussion. Um, I want, we want lots of Q&A. Uh, lots of left field stuff. I, I was here a couple of weeks ago for a, a, a um, session on Susan Sontag, which was the best Q&A I've ever done, so I'm relying on you guys to step up. We've got to beat Susan in this, in this regard. Um, and so that'll be the format for this afternoon's discussion. I've been, as chair, honoured to be given a little bit of a blurb to start off with, and, and I'm going to start... Um, by showing you a very short clip from The Age of Innocence, which Scorsese made in 1993, a film that was considered something of a departure at the time for this tough guy reputation filmmaker. 
I think what interested me about The Age of Innocence is that I, when I saw the film, I think I understood every film he'd made prior to that, whereas perhaps I hadn't quite had a full appreciation of that beforehand. The clip I want to show you comes well, late-ish in the film. The protagonist, Newland Archer, has pursued Eleanor Lenska to Boston and it follows his marriage to Mae Welland, Winona Ryder, and he's discussing with Ellen the implications of their marriage, uh, his marriage to Winona Ryder, and what the implications are for his real love affair, which is with Ellen Alenska, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. For um, about 20-odd years, I've been talking about Scorsese and, and trying to uh, assert that uh, he's not just a director who deals with the kind of films that are beloved by 12-year-old boys in flannel shirts. Uh, every time I lecture about the, the idea of melancholy or any ideas of a compromised or um, complicated masculinity going on in, this film, in these films, I inevitably get some Travis Bickle-esque psychopath coming up to me at the end <laughs> saying, yeah, violence is radical, man, you know, that... Kind of, which I find frustrating and I, it's, I, I haven't done my job. I, this is my concern. So uh, I, I'm very much interested in, in uh, trying to counter an idea about Scorsese um, as the maker of, of films that are only interested in a sort of reaffirmation of some kind of hyper-masculine hyper imperative. And, and I must say I do find some of the sort of perhaps more popular criticism about the films to be so obsessed with um, the traditional expressions of masculinity uh, and uh, very gendered aspects of masculinity that I think that we miss a lot of what otherwise is going on in Scorsese, particularly uh, his interest in women and the way he deals with women. This moment is a, a moment that I often like to show that idea when Newland's, you know, poncing and postulating and swooning all over the place and says, well, you know, I'm enduring this. What about me? My narcissism, my narcissism. And, and she just says to him, you know, I'm enduring it too. And I think there are all these moments of rupture that we see frequently in Scorsese where the, the roundedness of its female characters and concerns is demonstrated. Sometimes they're quite small and I think we would be forgiven for saying that perhaps Scorsese's primary interest is in, is, is in usually with his male characters. Um, however, uh, I think we get a, a, a very clear picture in a number of the films of the consequences for women of these antisocial behaviours that he is very much interested in um, depicting. I was thinking about Casino the other night and that terrible moment at the end of the film where we see the destiny of Sharon Stone's character, Ginger, basically dropping dead from an overdose in a, in a, in a hotel. Um, now, we can read these sorts of things in all sorts of ways, but I, I'm very much interested in the consequences of, of this picture of masculinity that I think Scorsese uh, is very interested in. And we don't just need to think about films like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore to think of him as an, a director very much interested in women. Um, 
a film like New York, New York, and I hope some of you have seen it, but that amazing moment where Liza Minnelli sings and the world turns around and we get all in one take and you can't capture performance like that. George Cukor does it in A Star Is Born without having an interest in in female actors and what they're doing. I mean, he's, of course, we know his interests in, in working with men and the way he works there. Um, so what I want to sort of just impress upon you is my view of that for every bit of kind of gangster rough stuff we see in Scorsese, there is a kind of a pal- parallel challenge bit of action which raises, I think, many contradictory concerns. A colleague of ours, Carol Siri Johnson, wrote a piece on um, Mean Streets and talked about uh, Charlie, the Harvey Keitel figure in that in that film, and and talking about how Charlie really wants to be a woman, because in the idea of femininity, he sees the possibility for um, movement away from that group. Of course, he can't even move outside New York; they are trapped. But that 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 desire is is a really interesting um, observation about the way these concerns work. Let's forget Martin Scorsese is not just the director of films like Goodfellas, Taxi Driver. Um, and, you know, f- look, let's face it, for a guy who's interested in films like The Red Shoes, The Leopard, uh, the films of Vincent Minnelli and Douglas Sirk, he's not just interested in men and these sort of hyper-macho concerns that are often uh, put in his, in his way by, certainly by some kind of critics. I think these films are very much about the spectator, and I think sometimes that spectator is a male spectator. I think there is a male point of view to the spectatorship of these films. But I think that guy, in, in many cases, is the, the regular guy. I think perhaps we think that people watching these films uh, see themselves as, as the sort of um, uh, Joe Pesci characters. But I think in many ways I, I see a, a very strong central spectator in, in the Scorsese context and it's a very domesticated spectatorship uh, I think we don't this is how we end up with the Sopranos we get a, a very domestic point of view that Scorsese is very much interested in representing so my point is that masculinity is privileged the excesses of masculinity are essential to our understanding of it but that's not the entire story um, in many ways we're looking at a, a much more varied and more nuanced representation of of masculinity and I think gender in general there's my two cents I'm going to now throw to my colleague Bruce right uh yes do you uh, want to do you want to screen first or um yeah thanks Mark I'll say just a couple of very quick things before I throw to a clip um so I'm going to talk a bit about in fact I'm going the opposite way to Mark I am going to an extremely violent (laughs) <laughs> uh, extremely controversial film, Taxi Driver. It's sort of it's so iconic. Um, it was a huge influence on me. I think uh, in my sort of uh, mid to late teens, I had a big post of Taxi Driver off my bedroom. Uh, so I don't know what that is about me, but this was a, a, a huge influence on me. I want to talk a bit about what Scorsese brings to American society in the seventies, particularly in relation to realism. Right. I think that if you look at classical Hollywood, we don't often associate it with a kind of realist cinema, whether political or otherwise. Um, and just in the last few weeks, I've I've rewatched films like Who's That Knocking at My Door, 
uh, Mint Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, uh, Alice Doesn't Live Anymore, etc. And it's quite amazing to see what he brings to the 70s, right? How interested he is in just how people live their lives. Taxi Driver, for me, brings a really expressive style and realism together. It's a life on the streets. We see Italian-American communities, etc. And we know this world of, of Scorsese. Um, it's, and the world he's depicting is violent, it's filthy, corrupt, and diseased. Right? I think this is the world of Taxi Driver. And this is going to be a world that you're going to see in a lot of American cinema of the so-called new Hollywood filmmakers. Right? And, and perhaps you've seen other works of, of these sorts of people. It's a world that is brutally realistic, violent, um, and, and aggressive. Most people, usually men, are repressed and spark suddenly into violence. We see this with Travis Bickle, Taxi Driver. So it's this last point very quickly that I want to cover. The American 1970s as a decade of repression and violence. And I want to talk about Travis and a sequence. Right. So Travis Bickle and I think we all know De Niro. If you've not seen the exhibition, check it out. Uh, there are some really great sort of images of De Niro and wonderful letters and things. It builds up. Oh, and I should say, just go to the exhibition for the little handwritten note from uh, Iris's parents to Travis, which they've got. And I remember years ago thinking, somebody had to write out that note. Mm. That's a long <coughs> note. Well, it's just there. You should go and have it. Like, I was quite amazed that they had it. Um, okay, so Travis, uh, in my opinion, in Taxi Driver, is both an idealist and a fallen figure. It's why we can really identify with him in, in quite profound ways. Um, he's a Vietnam vet, right? He's violent, he's racist, he's bigoted, and he's completely unassimilated into the American, I'm going to call it political project, post-Vietnam. He just doesn't fit into a society in mid-1975, 76. To quote Betsy, Sybil Shepherd, he is, and I, and I love this quote, uh, a pusher and a prophet, fact or fiction, a walking contradiction. And she's quoting their lyrics from a Chris Christopherson album. I think this is really the core not only to Travis and, and not only to Taxi Driver, but to a lot of the male figures that you're going to see inhabiting Scorsese's movies across this decade. They seem to be these contradictory figures, really driven by contradictory impulses. A couple of things I'll say before, I'm going to offer a reading of the sequence, and I'd be really keen to hear what you think, right? So I really encourage you to completely disagree with everything I'm saying. Um, I've taught that sequence so many times, and when I teach it, I actually show it about probably four times, um, just to watch it over and over and over. Um, and I guess this is the reading I'm going to offer. I want you to think about this notion of contradiction that, that, that I'm arguing runs so much through Scorsese, and certainly through Travis. This is my reading. One, the sequence offers something of a veneer of redemption for, tra for Travis. Think about what he's done in this movie. I think the sequence is trying to offer some veneer of redemption. First, he has successfully rescued Iris, Jodie Foster, from the streets. Um, and after the sequence that in the Paul Schrader script is described as the bloodbath, Jodie Foster comes out the other side, returned to her parents, and returned to the sort of um, apparently I idyllic rural American community. He's literally rescued the, 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 the young girl that he said he was going to. Travis also seems to have reintegrated into the social world of Taxi Driver. Just before what you've seen, there's a scene where Travis is, is sort of closely connected to a couple of the other cab drivers and they're all talking. 
right? And it's the first time you get a sense that Travis seems to be part of this community rather than that awful outsider that he was in earlier sequences with the cab drivers. So it's as if um, he now fits suddenly. You know, all the horrible stuff he's done, he now seems to kind of fit in a bit. And, you know, you could even say he's got one or two friends, right, which is astonishing. Um, in the final sequence, he encounters Betsy, right, that, you know, the beautiful Sybil Shepherd in that role. And she seems to be a final temptation. She's shot in the, in the sort of dreamy, soft focus you see in the rearview mirror, um, which is Travis's projection, and we've seen that throughout the movie. Crucially, and, you know, I love Travis for this, he resists the temptation and he pulls away, right? He could go back into the world, but he should. And then we get this final shot. Okay, so what is that? Did anyone, do you guys see something very strange happen right at the end? And so you're wondering how do you interpret that very strange moment at the end of the film? So this is what I think. Betsy recedes in the rearview mirror. We cut to the eyes in the mirror and we identify with Travis. We see him looking and we see Betsy receding. And it's a really sort of affirming gesture. You see her, he sees her move to the past. But then we get a second cut. And I've, I've called it here a cut that sort of crosses the line, right? That's a kind of technical sort of term. Now, it's not, it's not a clear crossing line, but what, what's happening is it, it, it shows us Travis from a perspective that completely breaks what we just saw before. Once in the mirror and then back to him. And it just looks really strange, right? Um, we get a mirrored reflection on a high angle on Travis. And then he looks into the mirror. And did you guys notice that it seems sort of spasmodic or kind of jerky what happens. Now, I think, and I don't know this for sure, I think Scorsese is playing either with frame rates or with shutter speed. And what he's doing is he's contriving a kind of unnatural intensity of the way his body is moving. It's kind of really jerky and, and agitated. Um, and I should say when I was in the exhibition, I noticed that Scorsese had made a note on a still from Raging Bull where he says this should be shot at 96 frames. So uh, it leads me to think that he's thinking in terms of how do we shoot certain movements in certain frames. Um, it seems to me that what we're seeing is Travis returning to this state of paranoia. He seems to be immersed again in the city that is symbolic of 70s urban American space. And if we go back to the idea of contradiction, I guess I want to argue that he is again the fragmented figure, but now he's assimilated into the city as a fragmented figure. And it becomes this really dark and pessimistic vision of what's going to happen through the 70s <coughs> in American cinema. And if you go to the end of the 70s and go to Raging Bull, for example, we get a really, uh, I guess in my opinion, sort of nihilistic vision. Um, I think that that sort of dark pessimism, that, that brutal realism, is an image that Scorsese and Schrader would trace through the 70s and 80s. And it's such a fantastic contribution uh, to American cinema. Uh, that's it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bruce. It's really good that you highlight that that scene because I, I think the first time I might have seen the film, it was actually cut at the end of the print. It just kind of got mangled somewhere. Someone, yeah. you know, and and it's a very very traumatic moment. Yeah. I, I think when you when you first see it, and and, and one that really does repay, repay that level of close analysis. So, you know, if you've got it on DVD, um, or even better, sometimes VHS have a really good <laughs> if anyone still has that. Even I, better on yeah, VHS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I've, Can I'm I not. just say one Don't quick thing? On VHS. Whenever I've taught <coughs> Taxi Driver, uh, I was saying this to, to Becky before, um, most students 
literally don't see that. No. It's and, and I guess because if you're not aware, it's so subtle. Uh, it's such a brief movement. And, and I, you know, it's the kind of thing, I wonder what's the difference in interpretation if you, if you never see that, that little movement in his, mm. in his head. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Bruce. We'll, we'll come back to some of those issues in a minute. Um, Adrian's going to speak about I music. I'm going to speak about music. It's not the only thing I could say about Scorsese, but I had to talk about something. <laughs> so that's what I said I'd actually talk about. Um, <coughs> now, some of you might have read a piece I wrote actually last week in the conversation. Um, it's the feature on Friday, uh, which is actually quite a bit of what I'm going to talk about now, um, not surprisingly, because I actually did it because I was on this panel. Um, and it's interesting you mention actually that moment with the Chris Christopherson song because of course mm. Taxi Driver is a film that really I mean it does have a very small amount of popular music but it's absolutely dominated by Bernard Herrmann's score um, and I think has a very different effect than a film like Mean Streets or um, even Raging Bull to some degree which also has a, a kind of found song score to a large extent. Okay, um, so I actually gave this talk, a, I'm going to read it because otherwise I'll be talking forever and you don't want that, I can tell you right now. Um, it's, this is called It Felt Like a Kiss or I Once Opened the Door for Martin Scorsese. <laughs> and I did, by the way, I'm not just making that up. <laughs> one, of the, one of the great moments of my life after <laughs> a screening of Playtime on 70 oh, mil. Wow. Um, okay. Music and movies are umbilically entwined in the films of Scorsese. Anyone who's seen them will, will know that. Um, it is almost impossible to think of Scorsese's cinema without the propulsive accompaniment of a track by the Rolling Stones, some very small list here, Muddy Waters, Eric Clapton, a Neapolitan street singer, or any number of other smaller and even obscure doo-wop, Latino, Brill Building, and R&B wonders of the 50s, 60s, and mostly into the early 70s. It goes elsewhere in other films too. It is the music of his adolescence and his early adulthood that dominates the dense, deeply textured and detailed, highly subjective, Sorry, Mark, but hyper-masculine <laughs> and combative worlds. I still haven't got over the idea of Charlie thinking <laughs> he wants to be a woman. I, I'll have to I'll think about for the, about the next 20 years about that. Um, <laughs> deeply textured and detailed, highly subjective, hyper-masculine and combative worlds of many of his best and most fondly remembered films. Some of the numbers in his protein first feature, Who's That Knocking at My Door from 1969, it gets... All sorts of different dates, that film, but some of it's shot in 1968, yeah. so I think the date of 1967 that's often given is plainly wrong, uh, were even supplied from his own collection, and some of which you can see in the carefully documented and listed collection of singles boxed in the exhibition downstairs. I mean, if you want to see someone that's got some kind of compulsive disorder, just look at how carefully Scorsese has, has kind of documented his collection. Although his use of popular music appears more organic or sociological than Quentin Tarantino's, it still has some of the archivist collector about it, a quality that rhymes, of course, with Scorsese's cinephilia, which I think Ian's going to talk about. When the Melbourne Cinematheque sought permission to screen the documentary Italian-American from 1974 in the early 1990s, all that Scorsese asked for, and we did have to contact him personally, was that we send a complete CD edition of Bob Dylan's masterpieces to add to his collection. Which, of course, we did. It was only <laughs> available in Australia at that point in time. And we were given the, you know, the OK straight away. <laughs> the signature music of Scorsese's films comes to us with his fingerprints all over it. So Scorsese often conceives of a sequence or a moment with a particular song in mind, or even has it playing on the set. For example, a key motivation, he, he actually says this, for bringing out the dead was a long-standing desire 
to use Van Morrison's fettered, churning TB sheets as a leitmotif. Although this use of popular music reflects Scorsese's own tastes, his upbringing and fondness for counterpoint, it is also deeply enmeshed in the worlds and subjectivities of his characters as well. That's as well. Sound as much as it is music. When we see Robert De Niro, to so take just one example, uh, Johnny Boy sashay into a bar in slow motion to the intricately timed and edited adrenaline rush of Jumpin' Jack Flash in Mean Streets, we cannot really determine where the music is coming from. The heightened sound of the jukebox, which of course is a fixation of a number of Scorsese films, or from somewhere inside of Johnny Boy himself. Mean Streets, like such ma later masterworks as Goodfellas and Casino, has something of the jerky propulsiveness and program randomness of the jukebox. The music also drops in and out, rises and falls, in a way that reflects and galvanises the cramped bar interiors that are Scorsese's abiding milieu, not in the Age of Innocence, of course, but in many of his films, and also match his jazzy visual style. Its use of music feels programmed and even curated, but it also feels organic and intuitive. It erupts from the environment. Now, this moment is quite remarkable in Scorsese's work, as it is one of the few times, I think, outside of Mean Streets, which has not moments quite like this, but moments where characters are much more directly responding to the music, where characters consciously recognise the music they're listening to. Gar's character programs it to shift from the peppy pop confection of The Monkey's Last Train to Clarksville, which he was supposedly about a Vietnam veteran coming home, so maybe not that peppy, but nevertheless, um, Griffin Dunn's Paul, of course, Paul's just missed the train, okay? So it, often it's kind of, ca it's using it as kind of a literal score at some level. To shift to the introspective wistfulness of Johnny Mitchell's more geographically apt and highly confessional Chelsea Morning, which of course is a very atypical Scorsese's song. It's much a bit like Life of the Sky being used by Jackson Brown in Taxi Driver, which is a kind of unusual moment in that film. Now, this moment also provides a critique, I think, of Scorsese's own practice, or self-critique, and how it cannily locates and uses songs that illustrate an emotion, a situation, that overlay the present with the past or work in counterpoint. This, he doesn't use songs generally for nostalgia in the way in which they're commonly used in those kind of found music soundtracks. This scene shows us the mechanics of Scorsese's use of popular music and the way it can shift the tone and atmosphere, create a narrative arc and embed itself into the lives of its characters. Okay, a final memory. This fascination that I have with Scorsese and music started with my first Scorsese film, a screening of The Last Waltz at Hoyt's Mid-City in the late 1970s. It was a strange and I didn't think of it as a Scorsese film at the time, I should point out, but invigorating experience. Several groups in the audience had settled in with blankets and guitars. I'm not joking, okay? <laughs> Perhaps they had mistaken the end of the 1970s for the end of the 1960s <coughs> or the film for Woodstock, an event Scorsese filmed and then edited and which he said made him shift from wearing slacks to jeans. <laughs> had a great impact on him, obviously. That's probably an important shift for Marty, I should point out. But looking back, maybe they were onto something. This was one of many Scorsese movies about the end of an era, a wake lit by fireworks, and Van Morrison once again ecstatically performing Caravan. Turn it up, that's enough, so you know it's got soul.
Thanks, Adrian. Um, I'm really pleased that you used that sort of expression that sometimes we feel that Scorsese's use of music is is programmed or or even curated, and that's not a critic. It's not a criticism. I think that's so important to the way, and I I think we love him for the fact that he takes the piece of music and he uses it and incorporates it into the expressive content of his filmmaking and he gets this from Michael Powell and Eric Pressburger the, the notion of the composed film so it becomes often a little kind of ballet almost mm. that wonderful moment when with Jumping Jack Flash in Main Street it's like you know it's a curated music choice with a choreographed moment choreography of camera and actor and it's a it's a, a little musical piece in, in itself and he says of Main Streets that He's trying to describe what it is and he sort of says, oh, I don't know, it's a kind of a sort of a film sort of thing. And you, it's, isn't it a film? But no, it, the, the music is so important and it's not that nostalgic use of the found thing. It's like, let's take the piece and apply it. And I think that's one of the, the great achievements of this. Yeah, I think the music also has to kind of generally emerge from the environment as well. That's a really definitely, important distinction. Definitely. The found well. is important. And he yeah. talks about that in terms of the way in which it replicates his own upbringing in, a, and, you know, in Little Italy with music coming from all over the place, yes. the sound coming from all over the place, and scoring things in very often odd, bizarre ways. Yeah. And that then plays into the films that he had, the, the way he uses music in his films. Definitely, yeah. And I just think it's one of the things I love about the films I mean um, is I think the enduring thing about almost all of them for me um, Rebecca welcome thank you um, I think Mark might have actually introduced me to Scorsese as a as an undergrad um, so I definitely am I guess coming from that kind of damaged men uh, school of thinking but Preparing for today, I've kind of done it by full immersion method, which left me feeling um, like a bit of a Travis Bickle, kind of wild-eyed. <laughs> but um, but what I've kind of ended up with is a little bit of a provocation, so some of you might hate me a little bit after this. Um, for one of the most widely acclaimed directors in Hollywood history, Martin Scorsese is sure preoccupied with failure. Romantic failure, moral failure, professional failure, take your pick. Life is a casino where cash is won as easily as it's lost, where prestige and sanity are chips in the game. Shame is a given when you're dogged by the twin shadows of Catholic guilt and the constant threat of losing face. Masculine power is fragile. You could lose it all with one bung roll of the dice. Money may be Hollywood's raison d'etre, as well as governing many of the resolutely masculine worlds depicted in Scorsese's cinema, but we all know box office is hardly a measure of cinematic success. If it were, the slick yet pedestrian thriller Shutter Island would be Scorsese's masterpiece. But still, I wonder what Scorsese's box office flops tell us about God's lonely men as outsider par excellence, Travis Bickle christened them. Scorsese's ill-fated sixth feature, New York, New York, is part <coughs> screwball comedy, part studio musical and part melodrama, a kind of nostalgic love song to Hollywood's heyday. The film's emphasis on artifice, the obviously constructed sets, the playfulness of genre conventions, belies a pretty dark drama. <coughs> it's a film about the competitiveness of creative coupledom. Saxophonist Jimmy blames his failure on his wife Francine's pregnancy. He blames the world for misunderstanding his music. When Jimmy abandons wife and child, he convinces himself it's not jealousy over Francine's rising star, but rather a sacrifice. He thinks he's paying the price for his art. 
The creative conflict was pretty personal for Scorsese, who called New York, New York a $10 million home movie. <laughs> During shooting, he left his current partner not long after she'd given birth and was intoxicated on the phenomenal success of Taxi Driver. And at least according to that wonderfully salacious account, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, a co-addiction to rival Henry Hill from Goodfellas. <laughs> Lucky for Scorsese, Jimmy's greatest failure isn't Scorsese. Scorsese's own for Jimmy's tragedy is that much like his reincarnation in the Coen Brothers folk singer Lewin Davis he's good but maybe he's just not good enough it took Scorsese rock bottoming soon after to make Raging Bull a project De Niro had been pestering him to make since Mean Streets which barely turned a profit but time has proven one of his finest Raging Bull was followed by The King of Comedy, which I would rate amongst the greatest films about blind ambition ever made. Scorsese pulls no punches in obsessive fan come wannabe comedian Rupert Pupkin's humiliation, which you can't help but think was drawn a little bit from his own. He was worried about his career's future while his movie brat cohort like Spielberg and Lucas were hitting the big time with E.T. and Star Wars. In The King of Comedy, many of Scorsese's signature flourishes are stripped away. His restless camera is replaced by lingering shots of Rupert's indignity. There's no division between reality and Rupert's torturous fantasies. There's no respite. Like many of Scorsese's men, Rupert doesn't only want a father's validation from his idol Jerry Langford, who's played by Jerry Lewis. He wants to take his place. Rupert doesn't just want to win his high school crush's affections. He wants to shame her like his rejection shamed him. I want to help you change your life, he implores to Rita, a cheerleader turned barmaid. In his French New Wave-inspired debut, Who's That Knocking at My Door, Scorsese's alter ego explains to his new girlfriend the difference between gals and broads as they're walking out of Rio Bravo. Abroad isn't exactly a virgin, you know what I mean? You don't marry abroad. In a body of work that's been preoccupied with the measure of manhood, the Madonna Hall complex forged in the westerns of Scorsese's youth has remained pretty steadfast. His period film, The Age of Innocence, is an outlier, an adaptation of Edith Wharton's social satire that in its opening credits suggests a feminine sensibility decidedly vaginal roses overlaid with lace that unfurl into bloom. This unveiling is a false promise. In this world, desire is repressed at all costs, sublimated into the overbearing opulence of society homesteads. Caught between his sweet and simple betrothed May and his tainted yet true love Ellen, Newell and Archer chooses the moral path, saintly suffering. Archer chooses the gal, not the broad. Would Ellen eventually reel herself, reveal herself to be just like the others as Travis Bickle realises Patsy is cold and distant? Scorsese's women are mostly sex workers in need of saving, hustlers out for your money, crazed neurotics, beaten wives. For Scorsese's men, redemption lies in masochism, suffering, sacrifice. It's choosing responsibility over desire like Newland Archer. It's Jake LaMotta getting pummeled against the ropes as penance strung out like Jesus on the cross. You never got me down, Ray, he mumbles, a fa his face a bloody mask. You hear me, you never got me down. It's choosing art over gals and broads, even if you end up just another schnook on the street. 
In Life Lessons, a young painter comes up to the great abstract impressionist Lionel Doby and says breathlessly, when I look at your work, it makes me want to divorce my wife. <laughs> in Scorsese's box office flops, his character's fear of failure feels so raw, so naked. It's painful to watch Jimmy Doyle's petty jealousies, Rupert Pupkin's fantasies of stardom that he stages in his mum's basement, Newland Archer's eternally dewy eyes. Give us Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street instead, a supposedly cautionary tale where neoliberal greed and corruption is rewarded with money, drugs, women and fame. Give yourself no choice but to succeed, yells Belfort to a room full of salivating stockbrokers. Let the consequences of failure become so dire and so unthinkable that you'll have no choice but to do whatever it takes to succeed. Fly too high and you might find yourself like Jake LaMotta, who looks into the mirror in Raging Bull's finest moments to see an up-and-comer who's now a down-and-outer. But if you're not prepared to bet at all, you're never going to win big. Thanks. Thanks. I'm interested there. Good to have you back, Adrian. Sorry, <coughs> save me my me coughing. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's great that you um, spoke, particularly about King of Comedy, which we don't speak of enough. Mm-hmm. Um, he talked about that as being just not shown on enough screens, and hence its relative box office mm-hmm. problems. But um, I, I love the way <coughs> you're engaging with the question about the Scorsese's men settling for responsibility over desire. Mm. Um, that's a really interesting kind of concept, I think. Um, yeah. And their, you know, responsibility to what is such a sort of uncomfortable question yeah. in many ways. Yeah. But um, that's certainly some lovely um, and some really interesting points there that I'd like to pick up. Um, now we, I've always wanted to do this, to do our live cross to London. I feel like Kerry O'Brien or, you know. Um, we're hoping that we still have Professor Christie with us. Yep, I'm here. Oh, uh, have you been sitting there silently all this time, Ian? (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying to be silent. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome and and good morning and and thank you very much for uh, being available to us in the early hours of the London morning. I assume you're in London. I am, yes. Yeah. Um, And uh, we've... I think you've heard what we've had to say thus far. I have, yes. Uh, Very interesting too. Uh, yeah, terrific panel so far. Can you please add to that? <laughs> Make it even more terrific, Ian. <laughs> right. Well, no, I can't. But my job is easier because um, I don't uh, have to weave uh, a clever analysis. And I, I must say some of what I've heard so far is really interesting. Refocuses attention on neglected aspects uh, of Scorsese, but um, I guess I'm here to talk really about his his work as a curator um, and as a film historian. I call it activist um, film history, and it's the kind of power that uh, Scorsese has realised he's got uh, over a long period of time. Uh, we, we, I guess, we're quite familiar now with his work in uh, starting the Film Foundation, which pays for the restoration of a lot of classic Hollywood movies and also third world movies. Um, he's been very closely involved in the restoration of major Powell Pressburger films, uh, particularly The Red Shoes. Uh, and I was just with uh, Bob Gitt last night here in London, who received an award. And much of the citation of Bob Gitt, who's 
uh, was at the UCLA Film Archive, was about his work on the Red Shoes. Uh, I mean, and that the money for that was raised by Scorsese, essentially, and Thelma Schoonmaker. We're kind of familiar with uh, Scorsese's work uh, in this field, but I would just like to point out that it goes back a long way. It's not something he's come to very recently. Um, in fact, way back at the end of the 70s, when he was very little known, he was still riding on the back of the success of Taxi Driver, he, um, he realized he had the potential to get a key film for him reissued, and that was Peeping Tom, Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, a film that was incredibly difficult to see back in those days. And uh, we, I did a retrospective of Powell and Pressburger's work, which transferred to New York, um, was shown at MoMA, in New York, and uh, Scorsese realized that this would be a perfect opportunity to relaunch Peeping Tom. So he actually put his name on the poster, raised the money, and got the film back on the screen. So that goes all the way back to 1980. Uh, since then, he's, he's done um, heroic and rather brave things. I mean, we might think of Scorsese as a kind of elder statesman today. And I think there is that feeling around uh, Mark spoke about the way that he was uh, greeted when he got his Academy Award, uh, finally, by, uh, flanked by um, uh, Coppola and Spielberg. But, you know, he's done some very brave things for somebody who um, has never thought of himself as an intellectual, uh, has always thought of himself as a practical filmmaker. And he did his first documentary about the history of cinema uh, back in 1995, it was done for the centenary of cinema, the, which was widely celebrated around the world. He, um, he agreed to front and, and indeed to largely produce um, a personal journey through American cinema. And again, I would urge anybody who uh, might not have seen it to you know, go look at it because it's a terrific piece of work. It, it's an autobiography through film, but it's also a way of looking at American cinema that very carefully re rebalances the received opinion of what American cinema was all about. It features some very, very neglected filmmakers. And believe it or not, he actually made that film while he was shooting Casino in Las Vegas. It was absolutely extraordinary. He was kind of shooting by, by night in casinos largely, and he was um, doing his pieces to camera uh, by day. And what you're seeing on screen in A Personal Journey is uh, the result of this extraordinarily um, energetic period in his life. I think that gave him the confidence to press on with his work as a film historian. And he did another terrific and I think slightly neglected uh, work, which is um, his journey through Italian cinema. Mm. And that's really, Scorsese paying tribute, obviously, to his own Italian roots. Um, it's a very personal view of what mattered to him in Italian cinema. And again, it doesn't just deal with the obvious. It doesn't shy away from the great filmmakers. Mm. He's passionate about Rossellini, for instance. But it also draws attention to seriously unknown films that uh, have meant a lot to him and that he thinks we should know about. And the slightly sad thing is that the onrush of his own career means that he's never made part two of My Journey to Italy. There is a part two in the pipeline. And uh, there's another film which he started to make but has never got back to, and that's a personal history of British cinema. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have seen the part of it that he has made, and I deep, dearly wish that he would 
have the, the time and the money to go back and finish it because I think that would again adjust our view of you know what's interesting and what's important in British cinema. So he's he's quite a revisionist film historian. He's not just saying the obvious. And recently, as you may know, I don't know whether it's reached Australia, he's curated a program of Polish cinema, hmm. uh, which has been touring the world. And uh, that's a fantastic piece of altruism, really, uh, for which Polish cinema is deeply grateful because at a time when nothing else is really drawing attention to Polish cinema, uh, Scorsese has taken the time and put his own name on the line, his own endorsement to encourage people to go see these films. And he, he has many other projects of that kind. I won't list them all. You may know the, the shortish documentaries he's made about um, Val Luton, for instance, and about um, Ilya Kazan. Now, that's a very brave move because Kazan is still not a popular figure mm. in many corners of American cinema and society, uh, regarded as having played a rather dubious role during the McCarthy affair. But for Scorsese, Kazan is absolutely central. And he was willing to put his name and his reputation on the line to, um, to, to show his, his regard for Kazan. So he's become, as, as I say, a, an activist film historian, an advocate for the kinds of cinema that he thinks are important, and uh, somebody who's on call to encourage more interest in the whole body of cinema that we tend to forget these days. I mean, we suffer nowadays from a surfeit of available cinema and directing people's attention. And um, you who teach will know this, and I know it as well, um, directing the attention of younger people to films that they may never have heard of, may think aren't worth digging out again, now that they're all available online and on DVD, uh, is a very important job. And Scorsese has really thrown himself into that work, I think. And, um, you know, the, the great rediscovery, the continuing rediscovery of Powell and Pressburger owes a huge amount to him. And I thought I should show you something. This is a show and tell bit. <laughs> If I may, Ooh, exciting. sitting next to me is a picture. <laughs> that is um, a photo that um, I don't know if you can see it. Can you see it on the screen? Yeah. 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 yeah? That's a picture that uh, Michael Powell took of Scorsese. Um, I think it's the only print of it. It's signed uh, by Michael. And it's uh, an early picture of Scorsese. Um, directing on set. Um, Michael Powell was a very fine photographer and it's just a kind of example, if you like, of how life and art uh, and biography have got mixed up because for, for Scorsese, his uh, personal involvement with Powell and Pressburger was the, the starting point in a way and his continuing involvement in trying to make sure that the films are seen in the best possible condition remains a real passion. Uh, he and Thomas Schoonmaker, Michael Powell's widow, uh, recently completed a restoration of Tales of Hoffman, uh, which I don't know whether you've seen it yet, is absolutely unbelievable. And they even found some extra footage at the very end of the film. It's uh, a, an example of really applying the skills and the passion of a filmmaker, two filmmakers, to um, restoring the past and making sure that we see it properly. So for them, restoration isn't just um, you know, tipping their hats to the, the classics. It's really trying to make sure that these films stay alive uh, for future generations. Uh, maybe that's enough from me at the moment, at the end of 
um, quite a long panel, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to chip in a little later if I can. Yeah, it's really interesting though. I think that in the way you highlight his activism in this regard, and, and I think with his activism, we've been able to look back at the films and see how much implicit film history there is in, in his various films. Um, that are fictional, and I suppose this all comes together with Hugo, but I'm, I'm thinking way before this, the extent to which, you know, we can see Minnelli and Red Shoes in New York, New York, etc. And this, I mean, it's great to be able to show these films and say, and then, then show Star is Born with it. And, and so there's that element too, which I think is important, and you've, you've talked about this before. Well, yes, I mean, it's true. Much of his own career is a kind of running commentary uh, a paraphrase of um, cinema history. I mean, uh, The Aviator is his version of the history of Hollywood, told yeah. from an interesting oblique angle. <clears throat> and um, I, I always remember a, a wonderful moment. Um, uh, I, I've been present at the shooting of a number of his films in, in over the last couple of decades. And uh, when he was making Gangs of New York in Rome, I remember meeting uh, Vic Armstrong, who was the fight supervisor, who had a great pile of videos in um he'd been sent home to do his homework he was watching classic soviet yeah. cinema mm. because mm. Um, marty was absolutely determined that that vic armstrong who had done the bond films and all sorts of things like that would know his eisenstein and his Podovkin. Yeah. very interesting it, it kind of feeds back it 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 goes into his own filmmaking and he loses no opportunity as, as you rightly say to um yeah, to, to inform what he's doing by acknowledging the past and bringing it into his own work and giving it new life. Mm. Thanks very much, Anne. It's a, a really important perspective for us. Um, we've been talking for a long time and I was thinking it'd be a nice time to open it up to the floor and um, yep. ask our friends in the audience for any comments or questions that you might have of any of us at this stage, um, given some of these provoking and interesting perspectives we've tried to lay out. Yeah, in the middle. Bear with us while we do the... Yeah, good evening and thank you. Um, as an analyst, it wasn't lost on me that the panel made 38 references to Taxi Driver, 32 to Raging Bull, <laughs> and 27 to Casino. I'm wondering whether that reflects the panels and the wider audience's um, uh, sort of appreciation or their ordering of uh, the Scorsese movies. Do you want to do a whip around saying say your favourite? Is, oh, is, uh, is that a way of answering the question? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say that uh, of Scorsese, I love Who's That Knocking At My Door. I just think that's absolutely wonderful. I do love Taxi Drive as a massive influence and I... And Goodfellas, and I adore Age of Innocence, and the King of Comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, the question was one, Bruce. I think we're one, talking. One. I think we're talking five here now. Yeah. <laughs> one or two, Rebecca. Um, mine's always been the King of Comedy. I don't know what that says about mm. me, uh, but uh, I'm kind of increasingly coming back to Mean Streets a lot. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think I don't know. There's just that kind of like in terms of that idea of the kind of personal cinema, but also there's just like a very different emotional re resonance in that film to the rest of them for me. Yeah, mm. I'll, I'll choose five. That's okay. If, that, <laughs> if that's okay. Um, the Age of Innocence, most definitely. After Hours, which I've talked about. Um, Raging Bull, I 
can't go past that. Goodfellas. And then I'd have to choose, and I, I'm not sure which one to choose, one of the documentaries, because I think it's a very underrepresented mm. aspect of Scorsese's career. And actually, it's interesting that the David Stratton's collection of selection of films pretty much cuts off after Casino, um, which says a lot, mm. about, I think, about the reputation of Scorsese in a sort of somewhat problematic way. So mm. I'll probably mm. choose No Direction Home as number five right. to, to bring it a bit more up to date. Mm. Ian? Um, yeah, I get asked this question a lot. Yeah. And uh, I've got a, my answer is, is Casino. Um, uh, I think Casino is, is a towering masterpiece, which um, has been unjustly uh, neglected. Uh, I think people saw it at the time as a kind of, um, well, a pale shadow in some ways of Goodfellas. Yeah. But it most certainly is in many ways. I think it actually yeah. takes the themes of Goodfellas much further. And uh, I've, I've called it a Jacobean tragedy. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a great, great film. And every time I watch it on a big screen, I, I'm in awe of what Scorsese pulled off. I'm going to be slightly cheeky and say, if you want to know my top favourite film, five films, get into the bookshop, buy my book, and you'll find them. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to say one thing. About <laughs> but which only goes up to the mid-90s as well. So that might tell you something. Now, I want to say something about, about post... Um, about post-2000 Scorsese. And, and can I just say this is the elephant in the room, isn't it? It's often the elephant in, in the room about, about what we all prefer about Scorsese. But it seems to me that it's vital for us to understand that um, with Gangs of New York, for example, I think this is where in his um, spend for a film he jumps way over the $100 million mark. So prior to that... My colleagues may correct me if I'm not exactly right about this, but there is that point when he starts making films for more than 100 million, as opposed to a film he might have made in the 80s or not, uh, you know, for 30 or whatever. We're talking very different kind of films. This is not the same thing. We're making one. One is is like a a great independent play, and the other one is a big Hollywood blockbuster. We're, it's a different kind of cinema, and you can criticise him for going in that direction, but. For the maker of Raging Bull to walk onto a set after 2000 um, and not make a film for that amount of money is probably quite difficult. We, we always say we'd love to get him back to making Main Streets. I wonder industrially whether that's even possible. I think for him. the face of mm. Hollywood has just changed so much as mm. well. Like that, the films that everyone is kind of gone back to in the 70s, that's kind of like very special alchemy that that period was, um, which, you know, according to most accounts, um, ended in, say, 1980. And those kind of blockbusters that I mentioned that mm. um, Spielberg and Lucas were ushering in, like completely changed the game. And mm. um, there's some of those things in those in those newer films, you wonder how much even a director like Scorsese um, is being pushed by studios in a different way as well. Like just some of those kind of filmic techniques that I don't think he ever would have, you know, he's wedded to those techniques like voiceover, um, which um, other, other directors view differently. But um, some of those kind of flashbacks that he uses and, um, and things like that that are, that are quite didactic and that never would have flown in some of the earlier films. You wonder how much um, the, the game has changed and, and how kind of heavy the studio hand is when you're dealing with that much money. Yeah, I have to say, to, to his Mark, credit... Can I chip in now? Yeah, yeah, of course, you, please. Um, I just... Um, I, I think that's why his, uh, his current film, the film that's actually in editing at the moment, Silence, is so interesting because that is uh, maybe a last bid by Scorsese to um, get back to that level of filmmaking. And mm -hmm. it's worth remembering that mm -hmm. uh, it will kind of complete 
what I think of as a trilogy, and I think he probably does too, which uh, begins with um, Last Temptation, which was made as an incredibly low-budget film, mm. um, and then Kundun, Kundun yeah. which um, again was made very, very cheaply and uh, got into a lot of political trouble with the Chinese. Mm. Uh, still has never been shown in China. Mm. And now making, making Silence, which is actually quite a brave film because that's going to get him into trouble uh, with its mm. portrayal of you know, Catholic martyrs at the hands of the Japanese. Um, he had a, a line of Japanese filmmakers keen to take part in the film as actors, believe it or not. And when we see Silence, which again was made under great difficulty, very cheaply, very simply, like an independent film. Yeah. I think we're going to see him maybe have a last go at that level of filmmaking, which, as you rightly say, um, is so difficult for him to do. I mean, he, he is a studio today, effectively. Yeah. And he carries all the weight and responsibility of being a studio mm-hmm. uh, on his shoulders. So, yeah, it's not an option to go off and make a cheap, quick film. Yeah. Can um, I add something yeah, of course. there? Because, I, I mean, I, 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 and I agree totally that there's a... It's Scorsese cinema is the 2000s. It's about trying to make films on the level that's required at this point in time. And if you look at his work in, in relationship to the other new Hollywood directors that he's often associated with, it's really only Spielberg that's making films on that level. And Spielberg's had, a, to some degree, with a few fits and starts, a much more consistent career yeah. than Scorsese's mm. had. So I think he has made a bit of a bargain to be able to make the kinds of films that he can still make at a certain kind of level. But Gangs of New York, to me, I mean, despite the fact that I think the first half of the 90s is possibly the greatest period of Scorsese's career, um, just if you look at that body of work, including the American cinema documentary, I think it's an extraordinary peak. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually, weirdly, someone needs to do some work on this, that that period of the first half of the 90s is almost, almost like a... A weirdly a second kind of new Hollywood in a sort of weird kind of a way because a whole lot of things are happening at that point in time mm. and a lot of those directors from the 70s actually make some of their be- best work like the Palmer yeah. in that period as well but Gangs of New York is I think a, a fascinating film because and, and it is the kind of it's the kind of tipping point at some level particularly after a film like Break, Bringing Out the Dead which is a deliberate re- mm. deliberate return to something like Taxi Driver, Indeed. which Schrader even in the correspondence talks about. We've got to be really careful here because mm. you know people mm. are going to think this film is just a reworking of Taxi Driver. How do we stop that from happening? Well, they can't, as it turns out. But Gangs New York, which seemed to me to make quite self, quite consciously made as a kind of big budget mm. kind of uh, American European production, very much mirroring those films made by a lot of the classical great classical. Hollywood directors in in Europe and Italy in particular Mm. in the first half of the 1960s. Mm. And I think some of the, I think Scorsese at that point was probably more interested in some of the interesting compromises, some of the battles he had with Harvey Weinstein, which kind of felt quite rehearsed at some points as well. Um, And I think he probably hasn't been able to find since then a way back because ultimately he found a way to make films on a certain kind of a level, which most of his other contemporaries are no longer able to do. Indeed. Can I just add one? I, I'd be keen to hear what people think of The Departed um, because I know that, that comes around 2007 and he gets the Oscar finally, right? Um, is, is that that's 2007? Is it? 2006 and then. 2006? I think it wins in 2007. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I will confess, I think The Departed is the strongest of his films of that entire period. Um, and I always found it to return to certain kinds of intimate themes that came from his earlier works. I, I want, yeah. you know, so that's clearly a studio film. So you've, if you put DiCaprio and Matt Damon together as the leads, 
um, of course you've got a you, you've got a certain stature and a certain aesthetic that you have to deliver on, but there are incredibly complex ideas around, you know, uh, uh, a, a sort of surrogate family, for example, and duplicity and and deception. And I think r repression is such a strong theme in The Departed that for me it, it it makes a really lovely companion piece to some of his really early stuff. Mm. I mean that's how I viewed it but I know that 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 it divides people, you know, the departed. So I'd be really keen to hear what people think of that well, one. Can I ask if you don't mind the questioner to be put on the spot where you asked us do you have a feeling about the 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 post 2000 films uh, you know would you nominate any of those in your top top group? The departed. The departed yeah. yeah. Apart from those Can fantastic I, I, I'm going to answer your question, but um, <coughs> I think we need to be a bit careful here because I don't think any of us are suggesting that there, there isn't a considerable consistency mm. between Scorsese's work before 2000 and the work afterwards. I, I think there is, thematically. Mm. And Departed seems... And, you know, even in relationship to what I was talking about with the kind of found soundtrack film, mm. I mean, plainly there are clear links between something like Departed and The Wolf of Wall Street to films like Goodfellas mm. and Casino, etc., I'm even thinking, you know, Mean Streets or who's that? Of not? course. Just the way mm. the, like, the music. Yeah, of course. Pen, I mean, all yeah. of those have that kind of... Yeah. I mean, and they're kind of interested in masculinity and, mm. you know... But I'm going to get... Sorry, I'm just going to get tough and muscle in because um, <laughs> we have an time. audience. <laughs> we yeah. can do this afterwards. Uh, there was a question sorry. somewhere. <laughs> Pass the... Um... Uh, look, I'm just going to say I think The Departed is a piece of shit. Like, I really, <laughs> I really don't like well, it. Okay. Jack Nicholson is like a cartoon character. It just yeah. doesn't work. Those Boston accents. At all. <laughs> and I think it's a bit of a shame that that's the film he wins an Academy yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. Because see, I don't like, see that at all. That's I, the film he wins yeah. for? But I think, like, when you're talking about the way that he's using genre, it's such a... Like, it is so much more like a conven conventional, like, that sort of... Um, I don't even know what genre you'd put it in, like that kind of procedural, but like mm. that notion of the sort of personal filmmaking that he brought to those gangster films, those very early gangster films and the ones like, like Goodfellas um, is completely gone and it's much more also the, the way that he's using plot in a film like that as well. It's, it's all about the plot and those kind of twists and turns of who's, of who's a rat where in mm. his earlier films... Um, which we literally see walk across. Yeah, which... I, yeah. Oh, my God, I yeah, groaned. I love the rat as well. <laughs> there's no but, plot in Main Streets. You know? But, I mean, yeah. the part is a remake of Infernal Affairs, right? So he, yeah. he's sticking mm. close to, to the model of a movie that he absolutely adores. Mm. And I guess... I think it's absolutely genre, and I think, but 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 that's this, he he's not hiding that. I think what he does is he does genre, you know, sensationally well. In the same way that I, you know, I love Cape Fear. Yeah, uh, for the same reason. There's a question there. Oh, I've, 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 I haven't got to my oh, question. Sorry. <laughs> my, <laughs> no, my question. I, I do it as a comment. <laughs> well, right. I've, I've kind of got two things. Um, Mark Scorsese uh, has often said that he thinks. Um, uh, Newland Archer is one of his most violent and aggressive characters ever. Um, that's more... I'm kind of interested what you think of that. But my actual question is for Ian. Um, Scorsese did want to make The Gangs of New York, I think, in the late 70s? Mm. Yes? Yeah. Um, have, do you know anything about that? Have you read the script that he initially wanted to shoot? I think De Niro was going to play uh, Bill the Butcher. If I'm just interested what you think of... What would the film, what would the Gangs of New York been like in the 1970s as opposed to what we got in 2001? 
Well, I, I, as, as you know, and I guess many people know, it, um, Gangs of New York was a, a cherished project uh, that he carried around for a long, long time. Um, and in many ways, it would be the other side of New York, uh, a companion piece in a way to Age of Innocence. Age of Innocence is, you know, um, posh New York, uh, which people were surprised that Scorsese felt comfortable tackling. I don't know why they were, but they were. And um, the gangs, of course, would have been the underbelly, the underside of New York. Uh, and, and indeed, that's what it turned out to be when he managed to, to bring it off. Um, the problem with it, I think, is that it, it's, um, it's a project. It's, it's a piece of anthropology. Mm. And uh, the problem is, is what to do with it as a narrative. Um, you know, it comes from a nonfiction book, mm. uh, a study of these extraordinary gangs. And when you try to force it into a script, um, it loses something. And I think the ideal form of that film would have been somehow not a, a fiction film, but somehow like a sort of monstrous, imaginative documentary. Mm. He, did really that, um, he did that what? interview series with uh, Richard Schickel. And Richard yeah. sort of said to him, the problem with the film is the opening. The opening's too good. And where do you actually go from that opening? And Marty <laughs> said, yeah, you're absolutely right. I didn't, I didn't know where to go from that opening. Can yeah, we, well, um, I sorry. mean, you know, the, one of the most... One of the interesting things about gangs, um, as I said, I, I visited uh, Rome twice during the making of it, and I spent some time walking around that set, uh, that extraordinary set which they built at Cinecittà. And um, really, that experience of walking around a literal physical recreation of New York, as it was in those days, uh, was almost, almost better than the movie. <laughs> and I think it's Hollywood on the tiber all over again, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that he'd, re he'd created the world. And the question then was how to actually structure the film. And as you know, it was notoriously a very difficult film to structure. But, you know, I think we have to kind of see it as um, the consummation of a passionate project, which he carried around for most of his adult life. And uh, we have to judge it accordingly. Mind you, Hugo, in many ways, is another kind of history of the beginning of cinema. Again, I think it has narrative problems. But I think uh, as, a, as a homage to the beginnings of cinema, it is absolutely um, outstanding. Definitely. I'm conscious of time and, and there's a number of questions still in the audience. Yes? Yeah, please? just a, a quick one. You just touched slightly on the other remake that Scorsese did, Cape Fear. And I'm just wondering what you all think about that. I think it's um, a really interesting genre exercise. It's very tight. Uh, again, it was a project that De Niro was very keen for him to do. Uh, sometimes it's described as him getting back at the wacky pack who tried to block Last Temptation of Christ. Um, it's a, a sort of dynamic work. I think that the um, houseboat scene is the most perfect example of the Palin Pressburger composed film. It's that, you know it's another ballet on, and it's a wonderful work. Mm. Thelma Schoonmaker's work in that is a, a, exceptional, mm. let alone the, the cinematography. But uh, an important and not often discussed film. It's a pretty nasty piece of work. I remember speaking to my father about it, and he said, "Oh, I would." He'd seen the original, and oh, you know, it's had that psycho in 1960s response too from a lot of people but um a really important and interesting piece of work i, th I find uh, i think he was yeah. most to, he was supposed to direct schindler's list isn't that correct? indeed i think yes i read that yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, i mean i actually think it's a fascinating piece of uh, feature filmmaking as an act of film history at some level uh, i mean it's fascinating in terms of looking at that film and it's one of the reasons why i'm probably a little less taken with a lot of more recent scorsese films so they just don't have the they don't really have the density that some of the earlier films do. 
but as a remake of the, the, of the early 60s film and the way in which it, it reworks and turns around, even the use of certain actors like um, Robert Mitchum and uh, Gregory Peck mm. is, I think, fascinating. And the, even the use of the score in that, where they take the original mm. score and rescore it in a particular kind of a way, um, mm. is, I think, fantastic. And, th- and of course, and all the links to Powell and Pressburg with the use of mm. colour in that film mm. are extraordinary as well. So I, it's actually... I wouldn't say it's one of my favourite Scorsese films, but I would say it's in that room of one of the most underrated films Definitely. he ever made. Yep. Another question? You talked about the two halves of Scorsese's films, and they seem to me to be dominated by his relationship with the, the two deurs, you know, DiCaprio and De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you can talk about the impact of those relationships. Rebecca, are you like to pick up on that? Uh, that's one. I've had a, a mm. big opinion on everything yeah. else, but I'm not sure... Um, how much to say. In truth, I don't know that much about that working relationship with DiCaprio. I'd be interested if anyone else um, knows how that kind of played out. I mean, I, my, <laughs> uh, I think uh, I think DiCaprio is a great actor. Um, I think that the kinds of films that they've made together are usually uh, sprawling, extremely large and... Uh, less contained and intense than some of the work with De Niro. And so for that reason, I don't know that DiCaprio comes across as being um, uh, in, in, in the same way uh, or bringing the kind of intensity that De Niro does. I know that when I watched DiCaprio in... I've, I loved Wolf of Wall Street, I've got to say, but even so, I can never quite bring myself to find that level of intense connection to DiCaprio. And I think it's, it's simply because... Um, it's asking a lot of a single actor to bring that level of intensity. And it's a different period. It's a different form of filmmaking. It's, you know, films that cost one, two hundred million dollars. And I've just never been able to believe that intensity, I suppose, in DiCaprio. Even though I think, I do think in certain things, like he's a really, really good actor. Yeah, he talks, like Scorsese talks a lot about the kind of level of trust he needs with an actor when he's in the room. But when you think about those kind of, like, very, very iconic characters that um, De Niro's created. De Niro's had such a hand in the way those characters mm. have been developed as well and all um, all those films have such huge elements of improvisation and a lot of yeah. those kind of key scenes and key moments from, from films like Raging Bull, um, films like Taxi Driver, they're all kind of De Niro um, improvisations that ended up kind of being the heart of the project at some stage. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so I do it. I mean, DiCaprio is obviously central in terms of getting those films funded mm. too. We do, we do need to mm. remember that because he's, he's one of the well, he's <laughs> one of the few truly bankable stars in yeah. contemporary American cinema. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it's a very different act, isn't it, mm. to the early days? Although the significance of um, De Niro after the second Godfather picture certainly was was helpful in that regard too. Uh, any more for any more? Yes, hello. Um, so most people probably know of uh, Scorsese wasn't going to be a filmmaker, he'd be a priest right now. <laughs> um, and I'm really glad Ian mentioned actually some of my favorite films, which The Last Temptation of Christ and Kadoon. And I was really interested to hear the panel's thoughts on Scorsese's um, exploration of spirituality, which I think mm. is also a strong theme, even in films like Taxi Driver and um, Mean Streets and such, and what you mm-hmm. thought about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Please. Oh, it's just like that notion of spirituality is so bound up with guilt in those early films and um yeah it's in like if i'm to be brutally honest um the last temptation of christ is the only one of his films that i've never gotten through whenever harvey Keitel comes out as that kind of like wise guy judas i just can't handle it and i i've only ever i've tried so many times 
Um, but I think it's really interesting, like going right back to um, something like who's that knocking on my door and that like that entire film is about this kind of expression of, of Catholic guilt and the way that's bound up in his views of, of sexuality. And yeah, in all those early films that and that notion of kind of um, Travis Bickle as the avenging angel, uh, that's really the driving force, that, that, that kind of overbearing guilt of all those early films. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, oh, I, I did actually think that yeah, Charlie wanted to be more of a priest than a woman. But yeah. that's a <laughs> 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 There's an interesting quote in, um, from a, a, a mentor of Scorsese's called Frank Principe, who's a, who's a, pri- or is a priest who was uh, well-known to Scorsese from his youth, I think. And <clears throat> I thought about it a lot when I was trying to explain to people what I thought Wolf of Wall Street was about and Frank Principe said the thing about Marty and his and his buddies is that there's a lot of Good Friday about their religion rather than Christmas Day and that dragging you for however many hours Wolf of Wall Street goes through the various levels of hell I think is an experience you have to experience but it, I think from a very Catholic point of view and I'm not well, a Catholic. Well Kate Fear has the I mean that's it's much more conscious about that. I yes. Mean, the Nero character she talks about the circles of hell. Yeah so, indeed so, yeah. but that that idea of a bit too much Good Friday I yeah. think is a really interesting way to think about what sometimes we just throw around called Catholic guilt. Ian do you have a perspective on this? Yeah I mean I, I think you know that we we don't perhaps pay enough attention to that that quote which I think you use in the your exhibition you know if I if it Movies and religion is what I'm all about. Um, Scorsese is a child of Vatican II, if we're going to get Catholic about this. I mean, he's somebody who he felt that they, the church could have reformed itself. And I think he remains a somewhat dissident and disappointed Catholic. And a lot of his films are about trying to make good what the Catholic Church didn't make good, as it were, uh, or perhaps is only starting to come to terms with. Um, I think... Uh, yeah, I think that that quote about uh, you know a lot of Good Friday is is really really important. Um, Scorsese wants to, us to feel the power of evil, uh, of depravity, uh, and he does put us through it. Um, in a film like uh, Bringing Out the Dead, which I think is a is a great theological movie, um, he does that, and um, and also in, in Cape Fear, um, Cape Fear uh, has got the the sensation of absolute evil in it, like no other film. And it's very interesting that when, when we were doing our book, Scorsese on Scorsese, I, um, I put the chapter together on um, Cape Fear, and I couldn't get Marty to read it. <laughs> and for months, he refused to read it, because the film had left such a kind of bad feeling with him that he didn't want to co- confront it again. Mm. And he eventually did, and he said, you know, Maybe the film's better than I thought it was. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it had that kind of effect on him when he read back what he himself had said about it. Uh, he, he kind of came, came to terms with it. So I think there is a process of, I guess, what psychoanalysts would call working through in his films. Uh, he does work through things, and he puts us through those things that he wants to work through. Um, and that's one of the most powerful things, most consistent things that his cinema does. Mm. Thank you. Um, Unfortunately, time has expired and we have to now move and hear our colleague David Stratton talk about uh, these matters further. Um, But as they always say, the conversation goes on. I'd like to uh, thank uh, certainly our panellists today, Adrian Danks, Rebecca Harkins-Cross, Bruce Isaacs, and a special thanks to our long-distance guest, Ian Christie.
Uh, thank you, you all, for coming, and um, come again. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the ACME website.